you would turn to John chapter 7, we'll be looking quite a bit at early part of the book of John for a lesson this morning, so you might turn over there and be prepared for this study. It's a joy to be with you this morning and to be able to start our week with worship to our great God in heaven and to remember His will, to learn more about it and receive encouragement to go out into the world and hopefully bring the gospel to those who are lost. I appreciate um, the prayer that was led uh, and um, the sentiment in the prayer gave attention to the creation of God. Uh, We've been talking about some of that in the book of Psalms, of course, and how poetic the language is, but how much attention is given to magnify God and thank Him for who He is and who He is. What he has done for us, I appreciate Brother Kerry and his his prayer and for the songs that were led by Larry as well. You know, much time is spent, and I think it's appropriate, in considering effective approaches to evangelism. Um, I think we need to give attention to some nuances of that. How do I talk to people? What do I say Uh, Maybe even specifically in dealings with certain types of error. How do I bring them out of that? What do I respond to them with? But I think sometimes we, we begin to miss the forest for the trees and we try to focus too much on maybe our strategy, uh, the particular way that we would lay out an argument, for example, on how to refute such a doctrine like salvation by faith only or or how to lay out an argument that would convince someone of the truth. And like I said, there's a place for that. But I think that sometimes we begin to put ourselves in the mindset that assumes our struggles in bringing lost souls to the truth is broken down to the strategies or abilities or the the skill set that we may have or may not have. Maybe there is a particular set of lessons that we could give attention to in regard to effective approaches to evangelism that have been tested and have found some success. That, that we're missing and we need that. And I think that there are some studies out there that experienced brethren have compiled that may help us. And those are appropriate. But that is not the solution, I would suggest to you. I think, again, we miss the forest as we get lost in the trees without the fundamental understanding of God's design for spreading the gospel bringing others to Christ, we're going to consistently fail. I don't care if we have the best curriculum on how to bring lost souls to Jesus and we know it through and through and understand it perfectly. If we've missed the fundamental understanding of God's design, we're going to miss it all. I want us to notice in John chapter 7 something Jesus says. On the last day of the feast, it says there in verse 37 of John chapter 7, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. But I want to impress you with the next verse, because this is not simply Jesus' invitation 
for individuals to come and receive the salvation he offers, but it is an explanation of the plan of God in eternity on how to make that spread exponentially. He said, he who believes in me, verse 38, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We'll consider verse 39 briefly later on in the lesson. But I think it's impressive how Jesus says, if you thirst, I am the source for quenching that thirst. So you need to come to me. And so we lack, it's not within us. We need God to satiate our spiritual hunger. We need God to quench our spiritual thirst. We are lost sinners who are in need of God's grace that only he can supply to bring us into his family and make us his children and make us citizens of his eternal kingdom. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. But what's interesting is when we come to that eternal, sufficient, abundant source of blessings of a spiritual nature, and we truly embrace them with full conviction and faith and trust, then we open ourselves up as a reservoir of those blessings that can then lead to the blessings being bestowed on others. We need the river that Jesus offers. We need the spring that Jesus offers. But he says, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. And he's speaking about being blessed to bless others. And it's not within our own ability. And certainly we're still not the source. But since we've embraced the source, we've received the solution to our problems. We're drinking in the blessings as a child of God. We have what others need. And if we've truly embraced it, we'll give it. And that's God's eternal plan for spreading the gospel. Is for those who've received and benefited from its blessings to bring it to others. That's what evangelizing is. And you say, well, we already knew that. But that's the key principle. That you have thirsted and you have come to the source the only source to quench your thirst. And as 1 Peter chapter 2 says, you've tasted that the Lord is gracious. And you can't help but bless others with that life-giving stream that Jesus offers. And if we don't grasp this biblical concept of an organic and genuine evangelism as a natural result of true faith, we're going to fail to bring others to Christ. It doesn't matter what your strategy is. It doesn't matter what books you've read. It doesn't matter what conversations you've engaged in with others who have been successful in bringing others to Christ. It's not just about dunking people in water and convincing them for a moment, but it's about sharing with them the immense blessings that you yourself have seen and have realized how great it is. That's what we see throughout the pages of the New Testament. But let's stay in John. That's what we see throughout the early parts of John, that genuine encounters with Jesus result in sharing him. If it's a genuine encounter with Jesus, not a pretend encounter, not a I'm doing this to please some other person or I'm doing this to get people off my back. I'm doing this because it's just something to do. It's tradition within my family. It's what I've always done. And no wonder we're struggling to bring others to Christ if that's the case. No wonder we're struggling to bring others to Christ 
If the only reason we're here this morning is so that we don't get a call by our brethren to make sure we show up next week. Genuine encounters with Jesus result in sharing him. For example, John the Baptist. Notice in verse 6 of John chapter 1. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. And this man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. And so this is John's very appointment that he would bear witness to the light. And you notice that all through him might believe through who? Not, not through the light. He's saying through John's testimony, men would believe in the light and then through the light, obviously embrace the rest of the revelation of God and know God and have fellowship with God. John is that one that would bring it to them. Notice in verse 23 of John 1, when they persisted, the Pharisees and the rulers in asking who he was as he continued to answer no to various suggestions. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. That's a quotation from Isaiah 40 in verses three through five. He is the harbinger of Old Testament prophecy. The Jews looked forward to a time when the Savior, the Messiah would come and set up that kingdom and restore Israel to, to great favor and power before God. And he is the one that would began begun uh, or begin that unraveling and coming into to being in Luke's gospel we remember as we studied not long ago when the parents of John were given that promise of a child they were explained that he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He's going to turn them back to the Lord in faithfulness. He's going to point out God in the flesh. He is that Elijah who is to come. And that's a great and honorable position. But one thing we learned from the start is it's one of deference to Jesus. I, I do his will and I point him out to the people. And so notice in verse 31, his encounter with Jesus, as he explains it, he says, I did not know him. I understand they're related, but there was a divine pointing out of the one beyond a shadow of a doubt that is the Messiah. And he says, I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water and John bore witness saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining on him. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the son of God. He had an encounter with Jesus, didn't he? God is pointing to John that this is the one so that he and his conviction can bear witness to that truth and others through him might believe. That's impressive. He's appointed to this, but it has to be reflected in his character. And I think that's what we see in Matthew's account of Jesus's baptism. 
Very briefly in Matthew 3 and verse 13, Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you are coming to me. And so this was more to John than simply a job. It was certainly an appointment by God that he took very seriously, but this included his own salvation. He realized he needed Jesus. And if he didn't realize that he needed Jesus and he's just got to point him out to the people, God's going to give me a sign and I'm going to know and then I can just do my job and get it over with. Do you think his job would be effective? Do you think a man with a character like that might have other character flaws? But notice throughout John 1, he understood his place and did not hesitate to point to Jesus. Verse 19, it's a testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites to Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed. Why does he say it like that? He's emphasizing John is adamant that he does not want any position of honor or notoriety. He's the harbinger to point to this man, Jesus. I am not the Christ, he said. Are you Elijah? I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no, I am the one pointing the way to the great one. He explained in verse 29, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said after me comes a man who is preferred before me because he was before me and I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. Listen, I know that I've been gaining a lot of attention in the wilderness, baptizing these people but I also know my place. This was all about pointing people to the way of salvation and Jesus. And when Jesus came, he said, I have seen and testified that this is the son of God. And he even told two of his disciples, follow him. There he is. In chapter three, you remember that there was a dispute about purification about the baptizing that Jesus and his disciples were doing and the baptizing that John was doing and his, his disciples had a question about that. And he would say in verse 30 of John 3 that he must increase, but I must decrease. And so you have a genuine encounter with Jesus where he knows that Jesus is the focus. Jesus is the solution, not just to all of these people's problems, but first to my problems. I need to be baptized by you. Remember, he said, I need you. You don't need me. You are the Messiah, the savior of Israel. And he embraced that and accepted that. And when he has that conviction, he's not going to elevate himself. This is about pointing other people to Jesus, yielding to him fully meaning compelling others to go after him, not John. This would carry over to the disciples that he pointed to Jesus. The early disciples manifested this genuine encounter, which naturally, organically led to sharing Jesus to others. Notice there in verse 35, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. You know, he didn't, he could have hid that fact. I still want to hold on to these two. I like it when people follow me. He didn't hesitate. Behold, the Lamb of God and the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. He did not censure them. This was an encouragement to follow Jesus. But noticed what they did. Jesus turned and seeing them following, 
said to them, what do you seek? And they said, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. They remained with him that day. Throughout the text, we see implicitly that Jesus is teaching them to some degree and with some volume about the Old Testament fulfillment in his life already to this point, that he is indeed the Messiah of the Old Testament. They stayed with him and they were convinced that he is indeed the Messiah. And with that kind of eager realization, notice what they did. Verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. That impresses me. He first found his own brother. And I think that's something we can start with as well. Where did he start? He started close to home. There was someone he knew intimately and loved dearly that did not have what he had. And he showed him. He said, we have found the Messiah. Notice in verse 43, the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee and he followed, found Philip and said to him, follow me. And Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, and Philip found Nathanael. Now you might pause there and remember that John is not giving us all the details of everything. Philip is not just taking a blind leap. He'd go on to tell Nathanael in verse 45, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. How do you know that? The same way that Andrew and, uh, and, uh, and John came to that understanding by spending a day with Jesus. He had an encounter with Jesus. He was convinced that Jesus is the Messiah of the Old Testament. And you notice what he does then out of that eagerness again. He came to Nathanael and told him that. And he said, can anyone, anything good come out of Nazareth? And notice what Philip said, come and see. I want us to notice something important that Andrew did back up here. He first found his brother and said, we have found the Messiah. That's not all he did, though. We share our conviction. We, we show that we've been convinced. We have something that we know is good and we want to give it to others. But then he brought him to the source. He brought him to Jesus. Nathaniel was hesitant, but he wasn't closed-minded. And Philip brought him to Jesus as well. And Nathaniel believed. These men experienced an overwhelming joy that naturally met with an urgent sense of responsibility to share Jesus with others. That's what it is. I know the treasure I've been granted and I know it's not just mine, but it belongs to others as well. Then we get to John 4. We see something really interesting. It's already a, an out of the ordinary encounter that Jesus is having with this woman because first of all, she's a woman. Secondly, she's a Samaritan woman and Samaritans, she would tell Jesus, have no dealings with Jews. Why are you talking to me? And he on top of that, ask for a drink. And then he answered her in her confusion. If you knew the gift of God, verse 10, and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She's skeptical. She doesn't understand the spiritual realities that Jesus is trying to disclose to her. 
and actually interestingly asks, are you greater than our father Jacob? Yes, he, he is the God of your father Jacob. But then notice verse 13, whoever drinks of this water, Jesus says, will thirst again, the water at Jacob's well. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And she's excited about that. Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. And it's obvious that he's talking about a spiritual blessing. The water is spiritual life that is fully satisfying, that is abundant in supply and will always satisfy our spiritual needs and longings. She's still thinking about the physical, but she asks for the water, doesn't she? And we may be inclined with the rest of this account to think that Jesus diverts from the whole context and question and thought that he had brought to her attention. But he answers her question. Give me this water, she requests. And then he said, go and call your husband and come here. What does that have to do with anything? This is spiritual blessing. This is spiritual life. But I want to tell you that this spiritual treasure, this, this fountain of everlasting water, of everlasting life, part of the blessing involves a tremendous and dramatic change. And that's what Jesus is giving. Call your husband. She said, I have no husband. And he said, you said, well, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one whom you now have is not your husband and that you spoke truly. That's hard to hear, isn't it? And it seems it might be hard to hear because she changes the subject saying, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. So he just told her something he shouldn't know. So he must be a prophet. And even though I don't like what he just said, at least I'll try to divert from that and hear something else he might have to give. So she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain and you Jews say in Jerusalem is a place where one ought to worship. And you know what he does? He doesn't just make her feel good about that and say, you know, there's a better time coming. You don't have to worry about that. He actually admonishes her, at least implicitly. He said, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Was she worshiping in spirit and in truth at the time? No, because you don't know what you worship. You don't have the truth. The Samaritans rejected every revelation of God beyond the five books of Moses. And He's not only admonishing her about that and telling her that the Jews got it right and then trying to alleviate that shame with the promise of this new age that you can worship God wherever and that all will be welcome. But he's also telling her, if you're going to be a true worshiper, you've got to realize the mistakes you're making right now. You're not worshiping in truth. God is seeking people to worship him in spirit and in truth. And so evangelism especially by Jesus's pattern, is not about making the people feel good in their sins, but making them feel good by getting out of their sins. And he's telling her that if you're going to receive this eternal and spiritual life-giving water, you've got to make a tremendous change. So what does she do when she says, I know Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us of these things. And Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. She's going to have to make a decision. 
Will she accept the conclusion that he is the Messiah based on insurmountable evidence or reject him because to accept him requires tremendous change and I don't want to change. I love my husband. I love my nation and the worship I'm involved in. It says in verse 28, the woman left her water pot, water pot and went away into the city. Is she fleeing from the requisite change? Is she fleeing from the one who convicts her of her sins? No, she went and said to the men, come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they went out of the city and came to him. And it explains later on that they believed not just because of her words, because they were drawn to him and heard him speak. Here's the point. You will not be successful in evangelistic efforts if you are chafing at and not responding to the required change of Jesus. She was told she was an adulteress. She was told she was a false worshiper so that she could come to that life-giving water. And she embraced the change, didn't she? And when she embraced the change and had that genuine encounter with Jesus and realized the blessings that would come from that and anticipated the great relationship with God and with his son, she went and told others. That's what led her to tell others. She truly sought spiritual truth and life. If you are balking at requirements of the scripture, if you are hesitant to make dramatic changes that God is trying to tell you to make through his word, you're not going to be sharing Jesus faithfully because it requires those people to change too. And why would you want to tell them to change when you're not even willing to change? It's got to be genuine discipleship that would make other genuine disciples. That's where we get to this next point. True conversion results in the spreading of the gospel. Genuine encounters with Jesus, which results in true conversion, and it's only from that spreading the gospel comes. Notice in John chapter 3, we see an explanation of true conversion when Jesus speaks with a man named Nicodemus. It tells us that he's a ruler of the Jews, a Pharisee. Later on, Jesus would tell him in verse 10, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? So this is a spiritually minded man. This is a religious man. This is a very knowledgeable man and a sincere man because he came to Jesus in verse two and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher came from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And that's contrasted with the end of chapter two where Jesus didn't commit himself to those because they were not going to commit to him and he knows their hearts. But Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he admits that you're some special person. You're from God because of the signs that you're doing and the whole focus of Nicodemus. You might wonder, why does Jesus bring up seeing the kingdom of God? Because the whole focus of the Jews is to find a restoration of the kingdom, a rebirth of Israel to be released from Roman oppression and captivity and, and to see the blessings that Isaiah and the other prophets prophesied about. They had a misunderstanding about them. But when he hears and witnesses this man, Jesus, performing these signs and teaching these things and 
having the kind of authority about him to do what he did in chapter two and cleansing the temple of all things. His thought is this has to do with something concerning the kingdom that we're looking forward to. And if not that, Jesus knows what he's thinking. And so this is what he tells him. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That kingdom, which is promised to the Jews, which is prophesied about to the Jews, to the nation of Israel, and you are a Jew, you are a Israelite, not only that, but you are a teacher of the Jews. You have to be born again to enter that kingdom. So you can understand his confusion. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? His confusion is, I'm already a child of God. I was born an Israelite. I'm in the kingdom now. And I just need God to replenish it to revitalize it, to give us deliverance into that kind of a figurative birth of the nation. And so I can't be born a Jew again. I'm already a Jew. I was born. And so he's obviously not understanding it. And this is where Jesus hits him with an explanation. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel, I said to you, you must be born again. There's a lot we could talk about here. This is what I want you to understand. He's impressing Nicodemus with the reality that the family of God is not physical, but spiritual. And unless you are truly converted by the Spirit's direction, which is commanding you to be baptized, and that's what that's a reference to, you can spend plenty of time on that, then you can't see that kingdom. It's more than just being a physical Jew. In Romans chapter 9 and verse 6, Paul said that they are not all Israel who are of Israel. In Romans 8 and verse 28, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward of the flesh, but he is one who is a Jew inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, not in the letter whose praise is not from men, but from God. Okay, it's great you're a physical Jew. It's great you anticipate and look forward to these things. But unless you're born spiritually, you can't see the kingdom of God. That is a transformation. That is a true conversion away from these thoughts of mere ritual and, and physical service and being a physical Jew to one who is fully dedicated and devoted to following God's will in its entirety. And when he said, how can these things be? And Jesus said, you're a teacher of the Israel and you do not know these things. He should have understood that all of the Old Testament prophecies about this new Israel, about this kingdom of eternity is requiring a true inward spiritual change. And that's why it would include the Gentiles. Here's something that's interesting. When he says you must be born again, the word is onathan or anothen. It's translated in verse 31 of the text above. And you might even have a footnote in your Bible by born again from above. That's the idea. You're born again because 
It's a spiritual birth, not a physical birth. It's something beyond the physical. And what kind of birth is it? It's born from above. You truly become God's child. You truly change. You truly embrace his word and his will, and you are molded by it, and you live and live only for him. Now, what's going to happen from that true conversion? That's the kind of conversion that we're trying to be led to by the Spirit. It's not just being dunked in water and now you're a member at 84th Street Church of Christ. Mom and dad did it when they were smaller. Older sister or brother did it, and I'm going to do it too. That's not true conversion. God sent his son to die for my sins and he is reigning at the right hand of the father and he has sent his word, the revelation through the spirit that tells me unless I am baptized into him for the remission of sins, I will not have the hope of eternal life. And based on that conviction, I give my life to Jesus and I submit to his will. What, what will come of that kind of a thing? A true conversion. Notice verse 8. He explains this kind of spiritual birth and change. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You'll look the same, Nicodemus. You'll sound the same. You'll be in the same family. You'll be in the same nation. You'll eat the same food. You'll drink the same drink but you are completely different. And while it can't be seen by a mere glance, it is manifest and evident through your actions. A true conversion means a radically changed way of living. And one of the key factors in identifying one who has truly given themselves to Jesus and is a child of God is them spreading that gospel with others. Notice in John 7 again, he who believes in me, that's the one who had thirsted and come to him and drank. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I'm reminded of Jeremiah the prophet who said that God's word was shut up in him and he could not contain it. He just had to speak it. Out of your heart will flow rivers of of living water. And notice what John goes on to comment by inspiration of the Spirit. He explains specifically what Jesus meant. This he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. On the day of Pentecost in Acts, the second chapter, Peter quoted from Joel's prophecy in Joel chapter 2, and he says, what's happening here is what Joel spoke about there. And you remember what he went on to quote from Joel? What Joel's prophecy included? That in the last days, God says, God, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servant." And on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. When does that occur? The start is here on Pentecost. The apostles received the Holy Spirit. What do they do when people obey the gospel? We recently studied this. What does the world need? What does the church need? The word of God. But it's not in its full entirety yet like we have it. 
And so these men and women who are obeying the gospel, it's not just given to a, a select few, to some of the initiated. It's given to believers so that they can take the gift God gave them and make disciples and strengthen disciples. And so you understand that in John chapter 7. You come and your thirst is quenched and you are given the ability, the source, and out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. I know we don't have spiritual gifts today, brethren, but we have their product, don't we? And God has blessed us with various talents and abilities and opportunities. And we, just like the brethren in the first century, need to go about everywhere teaching the word. Notice even in persecution in chapter 8 of Acts and in verse 4, therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Was it just the apostles? No. It was everyone. Christians, period. They were transformed. They were so convinced and so relieved with the hope and joy of salvation that even in the midst of persecution, they shared the gospel because they knew they had what the rest of the world needed. Notice very briefly, in Isaiah's prophecy, a prophecy we know good and well in Isaiah chapter 2 about the last days and the establishment of the Lord's house. I want us to notice in verse 3, people say, come, let us go up to the house of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Again, that happens in Acts chapter 2, but you notice that they come to it, and they're truly converted, and they're taught, and they walk in the ways of the Lord. That's conversion. Now Christ is living in them, and notice the transformation and what it affects. And this is our question for this morning. How do we spread the gospel more effectively? What's the secret to it? Notice verse four. He that is God shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. And these are the people that have submitted to it. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. They took their instruments of war and changed them into instruments of agriculture. They're going to sow the seed, brethren. That's the point. They're working for God now, and they're not working against the world. They're trying to save the world. That doesn't come without a dramatic transformation. Paul said in Galatians 2 and verse 20, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. What does it look like, Christ living in you? Luke 19 verse 10 tells us the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's the point, brethren. If we truly embrace what God is giving us in Christ, we truly are converted out of our hearts, will organically and naturally, without question, flow rivers of living water. We've got to give ourselves to Jesus before we can lead others to him. And if we do, it's going to come. We're going to find opportunity after opportunity because we're going to be praying for it after all. And when we find it, we're not going to, to hesitate, but we're going to be so excited because of what we know we can offer them by God's grace. And the church will grow. That's what happened in the first century. They didn't have this curriculum this formula, they had the gospel in their hearts. 
and that's what it's going to take. Before we dismiss to our classes, we'll be led in a word of closing prayer.